Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are your people through trusting our Lord Jesus. And we pray now in your mercy that your word would do its work in our lives as we gather to hear it. That it would help us to grow in our trust in Jesus and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training we would be equipped to do all the good works that you call us to and to persevere in faith. Help me in my weakness to speak your word truthfully and clearly and shine the light of your truth into all our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, you may have found it odd as you listened to Deuteronomy 14 being read that the living, holy creator God should be so concerned about what his people eat that he gives detailed instruction on what they can and cannot eat, what to do with the equivalent of roadkill and cooking methods. Uh, but Moses in Deuteronomy 14 is reminding the people of Israel of how their distinctive identity as the people of the holy God is to be expressed in a distinctive lifestyle, one that embraces all of life, including what they eat as well as how they use the material, the property God has entrusted to them that we'll think more about uh, next week. What is this all-encompassing identity that Israel has as his rescued, saved people? Well, Moses in verses 1 and 2 describes the Israelites by four terms. You are the sons of the Lord your God. In the ancient East, a son was a way of speaking of the political relationship of a subject to his king. And so on the one hand, being God's son, Israel was guaranteed the Lord's interest and protection and on the other, the Lord could and would expect their loyalty and respectful obedience. You are the sons of the Lord your God and they are a people holy to the Lord their God. The core idea of holiness here is of separation that God has separated Israel from the other nations to be his very own. They are distinguished now from those nations by their relationship to the Lord, the relationship he has initiated by saving them out of Egypt. Having made them his own, there is now the expectation that they would be wholly separated to him, distinct in their lifestyle as his, just as the Lord whose people they are is holy. And they were the Lord's holy people because they were chosen. They are in this relationship where they are especially the Lord's people because of the Lord's choice. And as God has made clear in chapters 4 to 11, this choice was not because they were more numerous or more righteous or more powerful than the other nations. The Lord had chosen them freely and graciously without regard to their deserving and in faithfulness to the promise that he had freely made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And by his choice, Israel has become his treasured possession. Now this is a way of describing Israel that goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. Here God had spoken of Israel, verse 5, as his treasured possession among all the peoples. 
his very own. And because they're his treasured possession, they'll be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. While all the earth is Lord's, all the nations are his, Israel is especially his, with a unique relationship and role in his plans. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people in whom he takes delight. Now, there is nothing new then in the description of Israel in Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. What Moses is doing is reminding them of the identity the Lord has already given them by his choice of their forefathers and by his saving them from Egypt and entering into a covenant with them at Sinai. These terms emphasise that they are God's people, have a relationship with the Lord by his choice and on his terms. It also reminds them of the expectation of loyal obedience to the Lord and that the relationship they have, which is the key to their identity and determines how they are to live, is one of tremendous privilege. They always matter to the Lord, the only God. They always have his protection. They can always rely on his interest and help, and this is unearned, founded in grace. And before we look at the way the Lord expects this identity to be expressed in Israel's life in the Promised Land, let's remind ourselves of why we're actually attending to Deuteronomy 14. Let's remind ourselves that the New Testament says believers in Jesus share this distinctive identity and privilege. Paul, talking to the Ephesian believers, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ. Or Peter speaks of believers as obedient children, called to be holy because our God is holy. Or in 1 Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. That's who believers in Jesus are, a chosen people, chosen to be holy, adopted as sons, a people, says Peter, picking up on Exodus 19 and applying them to believers to be the Lord's own people. How can that be, you think? Well, you see, where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus was victorious. Where Israel strayed after other gods, Jesus remained faithful even to death. Jesus is the only true and faithful Israelite the one who is truly son, truly holy, the chosen one. And those who believe the gospel of Jesus, that he's died for our sins and been raised by God to reign, are united to Jesus by faith. They are reckoned by God to be in Christ. So in Christ, believers in Jesus, you and I have become Abraham's descendants, <coughs> the holy people of God, by God's choice. Knowing this, we should expect to learn from Deuteronomy 14 not just how God's people in the past were to express their identity as his people in daily living. No, we should expect to learn how we, God's people today, should express our privileged identity as God's people in our daily lives. We are being spoken to in these words. This scripture is for us. 
believers in Jesus, now God's holy people. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. The surrounding nations practiced shaving and cutting for their dead as part of their funeral rites. It was a way of showing their loss and the pain of their loss and it was also a way of getting the God's attention to their loss. You see, the Canaanites also practiced a religion where every year they would mourn for Baal as part of a cycle tied to the agricultural year and they would mourn for Baal with similar practices, this cutting and baldness. But the Israelites are the Lord's sons and they must not do what the surrounding nations do. They never have to get the Lord's attention. They always have it. And they have it by the Lord's initiative, his choice. And so they must not suggest that he is ever absent, ever ignorant of their circumstances, unconcerned for their grief. Because they are the people of the living God. Their mourning must be distinct from the mourning of those who serve dead idols. They mustn't suggest in what they do that their God is like the pagan gods. And this is still true for God's people. Listen to Paul writing to the Thessalonians. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Because believers in Jesus are children of the living God, the God who has conquered death through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, the God who has a promise, a word stronger than death, our mourning as believers in Jesus should be different. Different in being characterised by hope, even in our grief. Now mourning in our society is very diverse. But there are some things in which believers must not share. So we don't get smashed as a way of expressing grief. Well, that shames our God through lack of self-control. And we don't repeat vague, baseless platitudes about people being with the stars or taken to be an angel. Our God has given us clear promises. And we certainly don't suggest that this life is all there is by just focusing on the life of the one who has died. We don't suggest that there is not a significant moral seriousness to death and what follows in the judgment in our mourning. Oh, and yes, we don't mourn as if God has abandoned us or has no interest in us. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of remembering with tearful thankfulness the life of our brothers and sisters, we hear and take comfort from the gospel promise that believers in Jesus will be with the Lord forever, that they will be raised glorious in power, incorruptible. Believers mourn. We feel our loss, but our mourning should be distinctive as the children of the living God through faith in his son Jesus who died and rose again, rose again, so that he could give life to all who trust him. Children of the living God who has promised that nothing will separate us from his love. We should mourn differently and to enable our brothers and sisters 
our wife or husband or children to mourn differently, we actually have to be clear, don't we, about our own trust in the Lord Jesus. We mustn't speak or live in ways that would cause them to doubt that so they can honour God in their mourning. So think, is that the way you will mourn, shaped by the reality of your relationship with God through his Son? Will it be different? Is it the way you will be mourned with that confident hope because you've shared that hope with those you love? We honour the God who has made us his own through the death of his Son by distinctive mourning. We express our identity as his people. And the Lord says that his Old Testament people should also have a distinctive diet. Now in verses 3 to 20, Moses is recalling the instruction already given in Leviticus 11 about clean and unclean animals. To understand the why and the what of this instruction in Deuteronomy 14, we need to go back to the way of thinking the categories the Lord introduced in Leviticus. Those categories were to govern the whole life of Israel as the Lord's people with the Lord, the holy God, in their midst. Those categories are at the heart of the sacrificial system. At the heart of the sacrificial system and the regulations governing the tabernacle, the place of the Lord's presence amongst his people. And those categories can be summarised in this diagram from Wenham. And from those who have eyes to see, there are almost invisible arrows uh, there. Uh, sacrifice, moving from the right to the... Yes, your right to my left. And uh, sin and infirmity, moving from your left to my right. Good. Right, okay. See, at the centre of this categorisation of the way the Israelites to think are these three classes, holy, clean, unclean. Now, holy is especially associated with the Lord and his service because he's the holy God. The Lord's the holy God, separate from all sin, all imperfection and all death. So what was to come into contact with him, the furniture in the tabernacle, the priests, had to be holy. Then in turn, if Israel as a nation was to live in his presence with the tabernacle or the temple in their midst, they had to be clean. They had to be clean. And for the unclean to come into contact with the holy, you see, was death. And so uncleanness always had to be addressed, and it is in the law, either by cleansing or exclusion, or, as I've said, by death. Only the holy, like the high priest, could come into the presence of the holy God in the tabernacle. But Israel, cleansed by sacrifice, could live around the tabernacle. And Israel were called to preserve the distinct status the Lord had given them as his holy people by his choice of them, to preserve it by avoiding all that the Lord said was unclean, that would defile them, make them unacceptable to him. They were not to come into contact with the unclean, and if they did, they had to be cleansed if they were to continue as his people, a process that involved time and expense. And it was the Lord who dictated what was to be regarded as clean and unclean. And in doing that, he was reminding them that they relate to him, the holy God, 
on his terms only, that he was king, his word rules, and those terms were non-negotiable. Now, in this case, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, we see the Lord sets dietary boundaries for his people. Deuteronomy 14 is telling the Israelites that these categories are to continue to govern their life and their interactions when they come into the land of promise. These categories are to continue to govern their thinking about what is and what is not acceptable as the Lord's people. So let's think about the list. It's organised by the presentation of creation, the categories in Genesis 1. And so you've got land animals, water creatures and the creatures of the air. And creeping things was a category developed in Leviticus but not really mentioned here because in Deuteronomy the emphasis is on what the people can eat in their new context, giving easy and clear guidelines for recognising the clean from the unclean for the land animals and the water creatures. And you might have noticed as it was being read that the Birds, the air creatures, have a longer list because it's actually harder to give simple, easily recognisable principles to distinguish the clean from the unclean amongst the air creatures. Now, the animals prohibited, like, say, pigs and camels, are not intrinsically impure. There's no campaign to destroy them from out of the land, reinforcing that these are boundaries set by the Lord's choice. And some in that list we might find puzzling if we're thinking the list was based on a modern scientific classification, as sometimes our translations might suggest. Hares, for example, hares are not ruminants and they don't chew a cud. The author is referring to what a hare eating looks like. And so it's not an error. What we have is a classification by external appearance, a description, and the term is literally bringing up. And bats are not birds, but they're included there because bats inhabit the sphere of the air. You see, this is not a classification based on our scientific and anatomical taxonomy, but the spheres of habitation where creatures are thought to live. Now, before we think about the impact of observing these regulations, would have the impact observing these regulations would have on Israel. Let's look at the last two regulations in verse 21 where holiness, their separation to the Lord as his own people, is repeated as the reason for all these dietary regulations. You shall not eat anything that is died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The instruction about what you're to do with what dies of itself is a reminder that all these regulations are concerned with holiness, not health. The issue with what has died naturally is not that it might be off, might threaten health, with the suggestion that it's all right to poison sojourners and foreigners and even make the latter pay for the privilege. No, the issue is blood, that the blood's not being drained and therefore it's unacceptable for the Israelites for the Lord's repeatedly prohibited the eating of blood. It's not for for them as his holy people. 
And the instruction about how to cook a young goat is a reminder that categories should not be confused and that the categories of holy, clean and unclean should actually train God's people's sensibilities. Now, some suggest that this boiled milk kid was consumed in relation to pagan fertility rites, and that may be the case. But there's also a bigger, deeper logic in this prohibition, a prohibition that's found first in the book of Exodus. And that is the distinction between life and death. The means of life, the mother's milk, should not become the means of death for her baby. The means of loving nurture should not become callously the cause of cruel destruction. That's categories of death and life. Now let's pause and think about what the instruction of verses 3 to 21 does for Israel as they observe them. Well, it does express their distinctiveness from their neighbours. Arabs ate camels, Philistines ate pork, and Greeks ate octopus. Right? The food regulations make Israel different from these nations and kept them at a distance from their pagan neighbours. And so it set, they set boundaries, boundaries particularly around table fellowship, helping the people of Israel to maintain their distinctiveness. And these regulations also help create a consciousness at every meal that they are the Lord's people that they belonged to him with their life governed by his word. Food regulations extend holiness into the everyday. And with that, the idea that they must keep themselves from everything that was unclean, that would defile them, was reinforced. Identity being expressed in daily life helps to preserve that identity throughout all of life and a consciousness of their relationship to the Lord in all things. As Wenham writes, a God who governs the kitchen should not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. More, these regulations link their daily life to the bigger categories of holiness, the categories in which they were to see all life. Blood, for example, blood which is life, the life given in atonement for sin, in keeping Blood of limits. Well, it's not just holiness that was reinforced, but also the seriousness of sin and the need to atone for it. And then there's the categories of death and life, that death is alien to the life of God and that this distinction between death and life should be maintained in a context where Israel's life is ordered by distinction, by rejection of the confusion of categories, as we'll see later in the laws about mixing crops and fabrics and clothes. The food regulations taught that the distinctiveness of God's people has to be expressed in the way God commanded, in everyday life and in ways which resonate with the big, the fundamental distinctions between sin and righteousness, life and death. <coughs> to be the Lord's people they had to keep them separate, themselves separate from all that defiled and they had to align themselves with what gives life and sustains holiness. Now, as I've said, we believers in Jesus are the holy people of God now. 
And reflecting on Deuteronomy 14 tells you that these regulations about food have their place, had their place in the life of the people of God. So is the Lord calling us to express our distinctive identity by following these food laws today? Some say so. Uh, This is the tenth question uh, from the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual, the tenth baptism question. Do you believe that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and will you honour God by caring for it, avoiding the use of that which is harmful and abstaining from all unclean foods? This is still the tenth question in their baptism manual and there's other things that they tell you you can't eat and (coughs) drink either. Now, to maintain that we still have to keep these food regulations is actually to live in direct defiance of our Lord's teaching, even if they now, as the Seventh-day Adventists do, claim that we should follow these rules on health grounds. Yet it's still in their baptismal questions, commitment you have to make. You see, the regulations of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are about holiness, not health even if health may be in some a consequence of living according to the law. But listen to Jesus, as you've already heard him, teach the people about what makes us unclean, about what makes us unfit for God's presence. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, food regulations relate to what's outside of us. There's nothing intrinsically defiling in anything you eat. As our Lord says, whatever you eat eventually works its way through and out again. You can keep, you see, food rules and still nurse pride and lovelessness. In fact, they can encourage you to look down on others who are not as strict as you. You see, you can keep these rules about food and your heart be unchanged. But what defiles us, what makes us unclean, unable to come into the presence of the holy God, is what is within. What finds expression, says our Lord, in evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is the uncleanness that prevents us being in the presence of the holy God and that brings us death for we must all appear before his judgment seat. And our Lord's teaching tells us 
that if we're to be holy, we need both cleansing and a new heart. And that's what the living God does for us in the death of his son and his entrusting to the son the Holy Spirit to give to all who trust him. Through Jesus, God gives his people forgiveness. That is, cleansing the stain of our evil hearts is actually washed away. And he gives us, just as he promised in Ezekiel, a new heart where we want to do God's will. And it's as a forgiven people, people with new hearts, that we this morning hear Deuteronomy 14 telling us that our Lord wants his holy people, the people he has called and made his own through saving them through the death of the Lord Jesus, to express their distinct identity as his holy people every day. Oh, and it's as people with new hearts that we hear the Lord say that he sets the boundaries, tells us what's acceptable and what is not acceptable and that what he says is non-negotiable. It's as people with new hearts that we hear him tell us that he expects us to keep away from everything that is unclean and defiling, to express our consciousness of being his and being in his presence in our daily life and practice, and to have a sensibility informed by these categories, sin and righteousness, life and death, holy and defiling. And so, for example, our Lord calls us to be separate from all pagan practices. That's what 2 Corinthians 6 is about. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are to separate ourselves from all pagan practices. And our Lord tells us in many places that we should have nothing to do with what defiles us. Consider Galatians 5, where Paul lists the works of the flesh, and these are the things that defile Sexual immorality, verse 19, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, bits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These works of the flesh exclude us from God's presence, that is, from his kingdom, from living in God's place as his people, in his presence. But followers of Jesus, says St Paul, have crucified the flesh so that they can give themselves to the work of the Spirit, to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, crucified is a violent image. 
And we ought to recognise that. It, it, it doesn't speak just of putting to death, but ab abhorrence and a sense of shame at these activities. It's a violent image, but it speaks of the determined effort believers are to make with the help of God's Spirit to have nothing to do with what defiles. The determined effort to give ourselves to the Spirit's work within us. And this should be our daily consciousness, where we do die daily to ourselves and embrace what pleases our Lord daily, knowing that we live in the presence of the Holy God. We are his temple and his spirit lives within us. And we do it daily because holiness is formed and expressed in a myriad of daily decisions. Together, putting to death and separating ourselves from pagan practices, we maintain our distinctive identity as the people of the Holy God through trusting his Son, the people marked out as his own by the gift of his Spirit, the Spirit that works in us to share with us the character of our Holy Saviour. The living Holy God is not less serious today in his desire that his people live distinctive lives. The holy lives of his chosen people live conscious that they are his every minute of every day. That they live this distinctive life out not in externals, food and drink and clothing, but in a character that conforms to their holy gods, a character that expresses itself in a life of love and doing good that doesn't set external barriers between peoples but actually create, creates an internal and clear difference in the way we live. Now, <coughs> yesterday I was going through with Scott Thomas uh, the sermon that he's preaching today at Hume with, with Chris. And at the end I asked him, in a sense, the question you should always ask of every sermon, what do you want to change in the life of your hearers because you've opened up this part of God's word today? That's always the question, whether what is to change is our thinking, our speaking or our doing. So let me be clear about what God wants to see in the lives of you, his people, if you confess Jesus as Lord. He wants us to be serious as followers of Jesus about maintaining our identity as the holy people of God in a world that does not know the true God. He's calling us to give ourselves to what expresses that identity, to show the character that is the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. And he's calling us to do it joyfully, overwhelmed with the privilege of being the Lord's people, his children. He's calling us to do it daily, right? To do it daily by daily saying no to our own selfish desires or to the language that wounds and hurts or the pride that despises or the greed that holds back good from others or the lust that uses and trivialises intimacy and to do it by daily saying yes to love and joy and peace and gentleness to kindness and patience and faithfulness. And he's calling us to do it consciously, 
where we actually stop and think and reflect on our behaviour and ask, has it honoured our God? Where we stop excusing sin and selfishness, stop dallying with it and saying, oh, that's just the way I am. Right? Where we engage consciously and as soon as we're conscious of what defiles us in the presence of our God, we stop, we repent, we confess and we seek forgiveness. He's calling us to give ourselves to holiness, to what he says should be the distinctive life of the followers of Jesus, to do it daily, to do it consistently because we grow in holiness as believers by a thousand small choices, to do it thankfully, to do it because we are empowered by God's spirit. We are not helpless to change, to do it because it is good coming from our good God and to give ourselves to this life where our lives are characterised by what pleases him, what's acceptable in his sight because we love our saving God who has made us his own, his holy people by loving us first in giving his son for us. So, brothers and sisters, reflect on your life. Turn away from everything and anything that defiles and give yourselves to walk with the Spirit in love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, to show each day in every word and deed that you are children of the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray uh, that you would write this word on our heart and we pray especially that we wouldn't be people who hear and forget but be people who hear and do and live as your people in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.